Creation skeptics often say that teaching evolution is science, but teaching creation, well, that's just bad science. But just who exactly is teaching bad science? Today on Creation Magazine Live. Get ready for faith-encouraging information starting right now. And for even more, visit creation.com. Welcome to Creation Magazine Live. My name is Calvin Smith. And I'm Richard Fangrad. And this week we're talking about countering creation skeptics. Countering skeptics that say that um, belief in creation or belief in God is actually unscientific. And right. So how do we yep. deal with that? Yeah, a common statement is that uh, uh, creation is bad science because it starts with conclusions. Right. right. God did it, so that's a conclusion, and science is supposed to be unbiased. It's, it's not supposed to start with presuppositions. You're supposed to just start with facts. Right. So evolutionists will often point out that science should be, one, open to correctability. Right? We, right, as we find yep. out uh, new information, future discoveries, we should be open that we correct our uh, what we've concluded so far, and two, uh, that we should follow a commitment to finding out how the world works by studying the natural world itself. So, uh, but the problem is that creation scientists agree with both of those points. So, what's the bone of contention right. here? <laughs> well, the conflict comes in when we start talking about origins, how things originated. Right. Because if you're, if you're finding out how the world works today, that's one thing, but how it originated is, is something completely different. Right. Uh, so a lot of confusion is in this area. It, it actually comes down to how we define science. Right. And it comes down to those issues. Right. And we can see this in some of the quotes from evolutionists like Richard Lewontin. Um, and, and look what he said. Uh, it, he's an atheist and an evolutionist. <laughs> he said, it's not that the methods and institutions of science somehow compel us to accept a material explanation of the phenomenal world, but on the contrary, that we are forced by an a priori adherence to material causes uh, to create an apparatus of investigation and a set of concepts that produce material explanations, no matter how counterintuitive, no matter how mystifying to the uninitiated. Moreover, that materialism is absolute, for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. So you wow. can see from his statement here that uh, obviously we've, we've just dis we, we, we can't allow God, so we're going to uh, talk about methodological naturalism. Everything has to be natural. That's the only yeah. conclusions we're going to... He's gonna... defined science in a particular way, hasn't he? That excludes right. the supernatural. Exactly. But let's think about this. Let's say um, you know, you're going to define everything that you can... Um, know about something by what we observe today. Right, okay. So let's say we, we traveled to Mars. And let's say we get to Mars and we look around and all of a sudden we find this object and we don't know what it is, so we start to investigate it. And let's just say it's, it's the equivalent of a car. Okay. It can get you from point A to point B. It's got a certain type of fuel. It's got hundreds of specific parts. It's got very sophisticated computer programming, all this type of thing. And, and you want to know the origin of it. So you're examining the parts. You're examining the computer programming. You're examining all the sophistication of it. And you want to know where it originated. But because you're locked into a certain paradigm, you look at it and you say, okay, we can only observe, we can only come to a conclusion based on what we're observing right now. How the thing operates. How the thing operates. Yeah. And, and, and so if you used that type of methodology, you'd have to conclude that, well, it just happened naturally. Because you're disallowing the concept of intelligent design. That it could be designed because you're not seeing a designer involved in the operation of that car or whatever that thing is on Mars there. Right. And what Lewontin has said there is that, yeah, you can't allow a, de a designer. The things that we see have to also explain its origin. Right. So, 
that you'd be locked into a particular way of looking at things, of investigating the world around us, that would exclude certain ideas. Exactly. Now, this isn't just a cute story about cars on Mars or anything like that. This is actually the way that uh, science is being done. Many uh, scientists have this kind of mindset. That's right. Uh, for example, uh, S.C. Todd, an immunologist at Kansas State University, uh, in, in a correspondence in the Nature magazine, he made this statement about... Uh, about examining the world. He said, even if all the data point to an um, intelligent designer, such a hypothesis is excluded from science because it is not naturalistic. Well, again, if you take that mindset and if we were to go to Mars and find some kind of object, that the natural conclusion would be it's designed. It's designed. Yeah. You actually wouldn't be able to come to that conclusion using this type of scientific methodology. Right. You're not allowed to reach that conclusion. Right. And we see that in science today. The conclusion that things are designed, that they were designed, and that's how they originated. Right. Is, well, that's not part of that. It's not allowed to be scientific. Right. So if you could come to the wrong conclusion, you had to come to the wrong conclusion based on your methodology, who exactly is doing bad science? Welcome back. The topic today is creation skeptics who say that teaching creation is bad science. Right. Now, we just showed that methodological naturalism uh, is not a sensible way to do science when discussing origins. Uh, despite what many evolutionists say, um, they seem to champion that, champion that kind of methodology because it's obviously going to lead them to a conclusion that supports their no-God, atheistic uh, beliefs, right? Right. Now, what about this idea that, uh, that notions, scientific notions should be falsifiable or should be correctable? Right. If, if we as creationists are beginning with a conclusion, and this is what is, what's talked about, right. are, are, we, are we open to correction? Right. Well, it's a common caricature of creationism, right? right? To paint it as fixed. Uh, yeah. You know, it, it's kind of like, uh, you know, when you're in Sunday school and what's the correct answer? Well, everything's Jesus, right? <laughs> God, you know? Um, and, and so this is the common caricature for, for when, you know, we're talking about creationists that are doing science. You, oh, well, you just say God did it and then you don't have to uh, really worry about it, you know, as opposed to evolutionary science where, you know, they're constantly open to new things, et cetera. Right, and this is this is of course not true at all. Uh, right. There's there there have been healthy uh, debates back and forth within the creationist community. There have been, there are now, and presumably there always will be. Right. There are things, for example, like the the water vapor canopy theory, the notion that there was a layer of water vapor around the Earth years ago, and that's been largely. Uh, done away with over the last couple decades right. or so and been replaced with things like catastrophic plate tectonics as a mechanism to do what some of the vapor canopy was to do. And the, the plate tectonics model is supported by some pretty cutting-edge research and right. we've done some programs on that already. And, and, and that's, that's a debate that's happened and, and uh, th th that's a healthy debate. Or we could think of where is the flood, the flood post-flood boundary? Where, where in the strata layers right. do we say, okay, everything beneath here was deposited in the flood, and then everything above this point was, that was in the residual catastrophism after the flood. And so where is that? That's a, that's a right. debate going on right now. And so, you know, evolutionists point out, hey, look, in, 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 in evolutionary circles, there are many controversies. You know, some people say dinosaurs evolved into birds. And on the other hand, you've got right. a, a dinosaur yeah. or, or a bird expert who's an evolutionist say, no, no, that, that doesn't work. And so they're saying, look, this is healthy science because there's controversies, etc. The thing is, when you talk to evolutionists, they have a bottom line as well. Uh, we have a bottom line that says, yeah, God, God's word is true, and we, that, that's a, God created, and we can, we can go from there. Yes. But, you know, uh, 
Evolutionists never question whether evolution happened. The methods, the, the, the different mechanisms, how it happened, they're open to changing and, and, and looking at ideas there, but they're not open to changing the concept of whether evolution occurred or not. Uh, correct? Right. And, um, and a good example of that is, of course, uh, Stephen Jay Gould. Right. Um, he said this, the extreme rarity of transitional forms in the fossil record persists as the trade secret of paleontology. And so here, here, is, here is, I mean, we've, we can compliment him in this case, where right, he's, he's honest he, enough to admit that the missing links are still missing. Right, so he's an atheist, he's an evolutionist, yes. and, and he's a paleontologist. Yeah, he, he, knew, he knew fossils. He knew fossils, and he said, okay, well, there's not these, these transitions here. Yeah, so what he did was come up with a different theory to explain the data. Okay, there aren't transitional fossils. He's not going to give up evolution, just like we're not going to give up creation. We're not going to give up the Bible. Yep. He's not going to give up evolution. So he came up with punctuated equilibrium, and he describes it this way. The idea of punctuated equilibria is just as much a preconceived picture as that of phyletic gradualism. We readily admit our bias toward it and urge re readers in the ensuing discussion to remember that our interpretations are as colored by our preconceptions as are the claims of the champions of phyletic, phyletic gradualism by theirs. Right. So here he is saying, okay, the evidence isn't in the rocks for evolution, but I'm an atheist. I'm gonna, I have to believe in evolution because I don't believe in a creator. You can't give that up. So yeah. instead of things changing slowly over millions of years, they change so rapidly that we wouldn't expect to find evidence in the fossil record. That's what he's saying. He comes yeah. up with punctuated equilibrium, but then he's honest enough to say, listen, I have a bias just as much as the gradualists have a bias, and, uh, and really it's just based on his faith belief that there is no God. That's, yeah. that's really what it exactly. comes down yeah. to. And, and at the most basic level, the scientific endeavor is a search for objective truth. I mean, right. we are, we, in, in science, you are trying to get to a conclusion that makes sense. Right. And uh, uh, to, to limit those things is, uh, uh, that's just not the way to go. We don't want to limit science in that. We don't want to limit conclusions. Today we're talking about countering creation skeptics that say that just teaching creation, that's bad science. Right, and one of those common claims is that evolution is is the unifying concept in right. all the sciences. Without evolution, we just wouldn't it's, be able to do science. We, we wouldn't be able to figure out anything without evolution <laughs> is the impression that certainly seems to come across. Right. And you see it in statements like this here from the uh, prestigious National Academy of Sciences. Well, they're more of an evolutionary organization. Right. They, they said this in their uh, guidebook entitled Teaching About Evolution and the Nature of Science. They said, the most important concept in modern biology, a concept essential to understanding key aspects of living things. Evolution is it. Right. And there's, there's other statements as well, for example, by the late evolutionist Theodosius Dobzhansky. He once made a well-known comment, it was quite famous, nothing in biology makes sense except in the light of evolution. Right, so you can't make sense of anything unless you believe in evolution. Well, I mean, really to assess these claims, first you have to define evolution, because oftentimes this word evolution is used so many different ways. For right. example, um, you know, there was a, an evolutionist named Kirkut who defined the general theory of evolution as this. It's the theory that all the living forms in the world have arisen from a single source, which itself came from an inorganic form. Okay, that, that's the general theory. That, that's what most people get, right? That there was no life, then first life and then that first life diversified and became everything that's ever been on the planet. Right. Yeah. But oftentimes you'll find that uh, you know, evolutionary propagandists, what they do is they say, well, evolutions change, then they show examples of things that have changed, and then they say, look, we've proven the general theory of evolution. 
But that's actually very deceptive because uh, creationists believe in change, of course, and uh, it's just the, the, what we observe isn't the type of change that would turn, you know, uh, microbes into magnolias or mice or men or whatever over millions of years, right? Right, yeah. I mean, certainly things change, but what exactly would be lost? Uh, from real science if the general theory of evolution were discarded right. or, or ignored. Would, would it really, uh, is it really necessary for me to believe that microbes turned into man and that type of thing it, to perform surgery or make a computer or build a car or, or a bridge or, or uh, rocket science, for example, right. involves repeatable experiments <laughs> based on observation? Right. What, what does it matter what you believe about where you came from? Did it, you don't need to do that to build a rocket. It's, it's kind of ironic also that uh, uh, the, the leader of, uh, down at NASA there of the Apollo program, Werner von Braun, was a creation scientist, <laughs> by the way. That's well, right. And he, his, his rockets seemed to work pretty good, yeah, even though did. he believed yeah. in God creating. <laughs> yeah, technology has not arisen through, uh, due to a belief in evolution. Computers, cell phones, DVD players, they all operate on the laws of physics, which God created, right? So it's because God created a, a logically orderly universe that we can actually even do science because why would you do an experiment today right. if you didn't expect tomorrow to be relatively similar so you could get repeated you know repeatable uh, results and and how can a belief in evolution a a, a no mind uh, process believe that you know complex biological machines came into being uh, without an intelligent designer Right? Our, our experience is that complex biological uh, or complex machines need, need a, a, a complex designer, not, not the other way sure. around. Yeah, and they've got an uphill battle, don't they? It's a little easier for us to, okay, an infinitely intelligent mind, put those things there, <laughs> and, uh, and it fits with science, fit, fits with what we observe. Right. But that shouldn't be surprising. Right. Uh, there have been many scientists who've believed creation. For example, Isaac Newton. Uh, he's hailed as, as the greatest scientist who ever lived. He's the greatest young earth creationist who ever lived. Yep. He uh, co-discoverer of calculus, formulated the laws of motion and gravity, and computed all kinds of other different things there. Invented reflecting telescopes. Brilliant scientist and a young earth creationist. He argued uh, per persuasively for a recent creation. Johann Kepler, right. uh, another great creation scientist, discovered the three laws of planetary motion. Uh, James Maxwell, who discovered the four fundamental equations that light and all forms of electromagnetic radiation obey. Right. These are, these are great scientists of the past, and they were creationists. They did good science. And today there's many PhD scientists who reject sure. evolutionary yeah. uh, storytelling and believe God created in six days as recorded in Scripture. Um, think of all the people that have benefited from the uh, magnetic resonance imaging, the MRI right. scan, yeah. right? Uh, MRI scanner was actually developed by creationist Dr. Raymond Damadian. Yes. As a matter of fact, we featured uh, Dr. Damadian in, uh, in our Creation Magazine. Yep. And uh, we do there? so in many of our Creation Magazines. We have a PhD uh, scientists that believe in creation, etc. So. Yeah, so clearly creationists can be real scientists, and this shouldn't be surprising because the basis for understanding the world around us, that laws don't change, is because God also doesn't change. Right. Well, we'll, be, we'll be right back. It, it may come as a surprise that the admission that the, the general theory, the overarching, the large theory of evolution has nothing to do with hard science. Uh, but evolutionists have admitted this as well. Right. Uh, for example, uh, leading chemist Phys Philip Skell, a member of the National Academy of Sciences, blew the whistle on uh, overrating evolution in a famous column in The, the Scientist. <laughs> Why do we invoke Darwin? Evolutionary theory contributes little to experimental biology. Right. Uh, in, in this, he, he took up the point made in a bioessay special 
uh, a special issue on evolution in uh, back in 2000. And he said that, quote, most or it said that, quote, most biologists conduct their work quite happily without particular reference to evolutionary ideas. End right. quote. So evolution is a highly superfluous idea. That's another <laughs> thing that he said. There. Here's what he said. The modern form of Darwin's theory has been raised to its present status because it's said to be the cornerstone of modern experimental biology. But is that correct? While the great majority of biologists would probably agree with Theodosius, Theodosius Dobzhansky's Theodosius, Theodosius, I got it there, Dobzhansky's dictum that nothing in biology makes sense except in the light of evolution, most can, can, can conduct their work quite happily without particular reference to evolutionary ideas. A.S. Wilkins, editor of the journal Bioessays, wrote in 2000, evolution would appear to be, indispensable, to be the indispensable unifying idea and at the same time a highly superfluous one. I would tend to agree. Certainly my own research with antibiotics during World War II received no guidance from insights provided by Darwinian evolution, nor did Alexander Fleming's discovery of bacterial inhibition by penicillin. I recently asked more than 70 eminent researchers if they would have done their work any differently if they had thought that Darwin's theory was wrong. The responses were all the same. No. <laughs> so, okay. when you, see, when you really think about it, when, when you're operating on operational science, how the cell works, what's going on here, uh, fixing a bone or, or, or putting a piece of technology together, who cares what you believe about origins when you're yeah. when you're operating on what's happening Either today? Creation right? or evolution, it doesn't matter to the science. That's right. And, and far from creation being bad science um, and, and evolution being good science, there's been many uh, occasions when a belief in evolution has actually been bad for science. For example, uh, we've done uh, shows on this before, and, and the concept of vestigial organs. The right. idea from evolution that well, you know. Portions of our body. If we don't understand what a certain organ's doing inside the body, okay, well, you've got this evolutionary idea. Well, then maybe it doesn't have a function because yeah. it's, it's just a leftover from our evolutionary yeah. past. It used to have a function, but it doesn't have a function today, so we can just rip it out. Right. So Your appendix, for example, <laughs> or, you know, I, I mean, at one, one time, evolutionists were proposing there was over a hundred vestigial organs in the human body. Well, y you look at a list today from a modern medical journal, and yeah. that list has gone down to about zero. Uh, they, you know, and, and we've found yeah. uh, uses for the appendix and, and all sorts of things. So you can see actually how it, in that situation, oh, we don't know what it does, therefore it doesn't have a function. Well, that idea came from evolution, but if you're a creationist, you'd say, well, look, there's something inside the body God's, in, right? He's not going to put something in there that's useless. Yes. Let's go yes. do more investigation. Let's do uh, more scientific research to right. discover what it did. It propels, actually, it actually propels science forward, starting with that idea. Exactly. Again, like you just said, okay, if, if, if God designed us and this thing is here, it's okay. Well, obviously, we don't understand yet what the purpose of this is, right. let's do the research. Let's figure out what this thing does. The appendix or the pituitary gland was on that list of, I think it was around 200 uh, yeah. <laughs> things originally on the, back, in, back in the 1920s and so on, right. of, of things in our bodies that uh, eh, we, we don't really need anymore because we, we needed them when we were fish or when we were uh, worms or something. Right. Uh, back, uh, 
millions of years ago. Yeah. And so, yeah, actually, actually evolution can be detrimental to doing science. That's right. Uh, one of the uh, most modern examples was that, of course, junk DNA, the idea that the, you know right. there's all this junk uh, left over from our evolutionary past. And, of course, uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Professor John Maddock, a leading figure in uh, genetics, said the failure to recognize the implications of the non-coding DNA will go down as one of the biggest mistakes in molecular biology. Wow. We want to get to some feedback. Uh, we often get feedback through our website, um, sometimes when we're speaking live. <laughs> yes, yeah. What are people saying? <laughs> yeah. Well, we had an article uh, called The Year the Water Dragon, um, The Year the Water Dragon Roared on, on our front page of the website. It was just talking about the Chinese zodiac, how it has all these animals that we readily recognize, yeah, you know, yeah. real creatures. The rat, the pig, the, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and it also has a dragon. And so the point of the article was, well, you know, look, look, why would they have one mythological creature in amongst all these, yeah. you know, yeah. real creatures? Because dragons have been, mytho you know, mythologized. And of course, creationists make the uh, connection between the fact that, well, when these people said they saw dragons, really they saw these huge reptilian beasts. We're talking about dinosaurs. We make that connection between right. dragons and dinosaurs, etc. Yeah. And, uh, but we got some feedback from a Christian. Uh, who likes our ministry, but he, he had, a, had a problem with that particular uh, look uh, from the article. He said, uh, I'm a Christian and a subscriber to your magazine. I would love to find more evidence that supports our view of a creator and loving God. However, sometimes I think that, that we are just reaching. If we use this kind of rationale, we could also say that perhaps the Egyptians knew of half-men, half-horse centaurs. I think we can do better than this don't you? So he's pointing out that he, he thought it was illogical the way we'd use this this concept of, well, they, they've got pictures of dragons, that must have mean, yeah. you know. Why not centaurs? Right, okay. Right. And so Dr. Carl Whelan, the uh, kind of the grandfather of the ministry who started Creation Magazine on his typewriter back in 1978, he did the response in this particular case. Yeah. He said, Dear Jamie, thanks very much for sending in your comments, but it's important not to overreach as you indicate, but I wonder if you have thought the centaur dragon matter through carefully. I ask this because the only way I can see that the proposed dragon-dinosaur link would even be remotely comparable to your Egyptian centaur example would be if there were, and he makes four points here, number one, vast numbers of fossils of real centaur-like creatures, or CLCs here for short, <laughs> yeah. in the rock record. We don't find them in the record. We don't find them, obviously, yeah. Uh, uh, number two, no CLCs alive today. Number three, strong claims that CLCs were, suppo were supposed to have died out vast ages before people were supposedly to have existed. Yet there were, number four, tales of centaurs remarkably similar to those CLCs widespread throughout the different, uh, many different ethnic and geographic groupings. Right, so obviously uh, dinosaurs and centaurs, there's not a lot of... Yeah, there's differences <laughs> there, and Carl yeah. is highlighting these. He continues this way. As far as I can tell, not one of these applies. Concerning uh, uh, D, centaur stories seem largely, perhaps exclusively, restricted to Greek mythology, whereas this quote about dragons is quite different. Here's the quote. Of all Ori old monsters, dragons are the most persistent, appearing everywhere from mall crystal shops to Disney movies. <laughs> uh, dragon images have been found on the Ishtar Gate of Babylon, on scrolls from China in Egyptian hieroglyphs and Ethiopian sketches, on the prows of Viking ships in bas-relief on Aztec temples, 
on cliffs above the Mississippi River, even on bones carved by Inuits in climates where no reptile could live. Right. Now, that's the New York Times uh, quoted in uh, bioessays, right? So um, here's people that um, probably don't take the biblical creationist position, and they're just noting the fact that all over the world there are records of people um, carving dragons and, and, and having these stories. Both the Creation Magazine live TV show and this podcast are produced by Creation Ministries International, a global think tank organization dedicated to disseminating the huge amount of scientific evidence for the accuracy of the biblical account of the origin of our universe. If you'd like to donate to keep this information coming, go to creation.com slash donate. And thanks for listening.